not technically from me. I didn't write the Bible. It's from Ephesians 3, 1 to, 1 to chapter 4, 16. So it's like, it's pretty long. Um, and we're reading from the ESV, or it's just in your book thing. Um, yeah. So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to, to the to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be know, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, is, he has realised in Jesus Christ our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humanity and gentleness, with patience, bearing with, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Grace was given to each of us according to the measures of God's Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he, held, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful screams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it was equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wonderful. It's good to see you all here. Special welcome to you if it's your uh, first day or night with us. I know there's a number of you who have joined us today. Uh, it's good to have you with us. We have uh, people who are in first year and even some graduates who have joined us tonight. So welcome to you all. It's good to have you here. Before we start, I just wanted to uh, begin by plugging a couple of books. In fact, we'll go through several books uh, tonight. Uh, because you need to be building a Christian library for yourself. And the kinds of books that I want to commend to you are the books that you will keep on coming back to over and over again, rather than the kind of books that you're just going to read once off. The kinds of books that you'll come back to over and over again are the ones that help you understand, especially, the great themes of Scripture. So on 
Monday night, we actually looked at the doctrine of God, as it were, who God is. God is our Father. And one of the more recent books that I found especially inspiring in many ways is called The Good God by Michael Reeves. It's a thin book, but a really helpful book to understand the nature of his Trinitarian being. There's a number of books on God there, like Knowing God by J.I. Packer and In the Light of the Sun as well by Andrew Moody, uh, and this one, The Good God by Michael Reeves. So it gives you an understanding of the doctrine or teaching of God. Along the same lines is what gathers the themes together is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. This is a book that you'll come back to over and over again. And every generation or so of university students will run a media conference on the cross of Christ. I want to suggest to you that every conference is really on the cross of Christ at one level or another because the cross is at the very center of our understanding of theology. And this one is one that you'll come back to over and again. And just another kind of resource book is called God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. This is the book that helps you understand that the Bible is really one big story. One big story that climaxes in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are 66 episodes because there are 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And this book helps you understand how the whole Bible fits together because it really is one big picture. So there's a number of books along those lines. One on doctrine, one on how the whole Bible fits together. These are tools that you will use over and over again. And I really do commend them to you. Well, now we're going to uh, look at the passage that was read out for us and a little more. And given the task that is ahead of us, we need God's help, don't we? So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it always is to gather together. Thank you that we've been able to bathe in your word all week so far. And we pray now that as we hear this portion of your word, please so penetrate our hearts and minds so that our lives will be transformed into the likeness of your Son from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. She was at Bible college. And she was all set on serving Jesus on the mission field as a single woman. But one night, she had a dream. And in her dream, she was hiking up a beautiful mountain. And in that dream, as she hiked, there was a man. It was a man that she respected. She kind of liked. But then she woke up and she shrugged it all off as La La Land. <laughs> Complete fantasy. But wait for it. Three days later, this same man in her dream asked her out on a date. And today they live as husband and wife. Crazy, isn't it? Do you think that could possibly happen? That girl is Jeanette Chin. <laughs> Fancy that. Was God leading Jeanette by his spirit through her dream? What do you think? Hands up if you think, yes, that was God's prompting by his spirit. <laughs> Hands up if you would like it to be God's prompting by his spirit. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. Anyway, I'm going to just leave that hanging for a while. Just consider for a while. But we'll see how we go in thinking through some principles. So... Just to draw us back together, where have we come from in thinking about all of this? What have we learnt so far? Monday night, we learnt that the God who leads us is our loving, sovereign 
Father. And last night, we learnt that as our Father, where God is leading us, and that is ultimately to have all things in heaven and on earth united under Christ. That's where he is heading us. We learnt that the reality now is that humanity outside of Christ continues to be the walking dead under the wrath of God because of our natural desires, our incurve to resist his love and to live for ourselves. But those of us in Christ, however, have been supernaturally blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that we are raised up with Christ in heaven now. We can't get any closer to him. All right, that's the reality now. But how are we going to get to where in terms of his will and plans? How is God fulfilling his plans, his will? By uniting his people in the world in a cosmic plan to create one new humanity in Christ, one new body, one new class of people together, a worldwide body made up of Jews and Gentiles seated in the heavenly places. And it was lovely to hear Dave's testimony, wasn't it? That you just make deliberate decisions toward that end. And it's just all in the concrete opportunities in front of us. Who you sit next to at these tables here, at this very conference, is all part of working towards that plan. And today in seminar three, we've explored how God reveals himself through his word and what is written down in the scriptures. And that the Bible is authoritative, that it is clear, that it is necessary. But tonight I want to concentrate on the fact that the Bible is sufficient for life as we live for God. But when we think about that, is that the only way that God leads us? Doesn't he lead us apart from the Bible? I mean, what about the Holy Spirit? Where does the Holy Spirit come into play into all of this? Well, let me suggest five quick propositions that I've borrowed from a book called uh, Guidance and the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. Guidance and the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. It's one of the basic books that we read as we prepared for this conference, although there's so much more, as you will see, if you've ever read the book. But let me share with you five of their propositions which were particularly helpful, although I've nuanced them a little bit in light of what we've learnt this week. One, I think I've got space there in your outlines. Firstly, God in his fatherly care sovereignly uses everything to lead us behind the scenes. God in his fatherly care sovereignly uses everything to lead us behind the scenes. God is at work in everything. Romans 8 verse 28, God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him. He works in the mundane, he works in the spectacular, he works in the so-called coincidences, in seemingly, seemingly random, random events, our joys, in our struggles, in our grief, in every aspect of our lives without us necessarily being conscious of it. Now, just this lunchtime, uh, Jeanette and I had lunch with the beautiful Sarah and the handsome Sam, and we had lunch together. And, and both of us, unbeknownst, independently decided to get glasses of water for our table. But I got there first, and so they had four extra glasses. But lo and behold, the table next to us, which had Dave and Liz and their pleasant company they had, they, they were missing four glasses. So they turned up with four extra glasses, and whoa, it went to a place of need immediately like that. Unbelievable, right? God was sovereignly at work in us getting too many glasses of water. And it was for a purpose. Secondly, God can lead us by speaking to his people in many and varied ways. Right? He can lead us by speaking to his people in many and varied ways. He spoke directly to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He spoke to Moses in the so-called burning bush. He spoke to Balaam. Through a donkey, he spoke to King Belshazzar by writing on a wall with a disembodied hand. He spoke to Daniel through dreams. He spoke to Gideon through the laying out of a fleece. He spoke to Israel through the prophets, to the early Christians, through his apostles and evangelists. 
That is, in this past, he has spoken in many and varied ways. And I want to suggest to you that God can lead his people in these many and varied ways. Nothing is impossible for God. I keep hearing story after story after story of Muslims who have had visions and dreams prior to meeting a Christian. But dreams about Jesus prior to meeting a Christian. And then they meet the Christian and they hear the gospel through the Christian and they become Christians, believe it or not. But God used those visions. God used those dreams to bring it about. But once they heard the scriptures, they didn't have any more visions. But the vision was there to kind of preempt the meeting, as it were. God uses it. Right? He can do that. He has done it. He can do it. Point three. But here's the thing. Although he can do that, God doesn't promise to lead us in these many and varied ways. God doesn't promise to lead us in these many and varied ways. He can, he has, but he doesn't promise to. So we shouldn't ordinarily expect him to speak to us in these ways today. I mean, you don't just see a donkey and think, whoa, God might speak to me and go up to the donkey, do you? You don't wait next to a wall waiting for a disembodied hand to write Jeanette you know, on, on the wall, do you? You'd love it. I'd love it. You'd like to know what I thought about it all, don't you? But you can ask me that later. No, no, don't ask me. That's fine. That's fine. Um, but basically, we don't do that, do we? Because there are many and varied ways, but I don't expect God to speak to me that way. Although God can. God does not promise to ordinarily lead us by speaking in these many and varied ways. So we should not ordinarily look for him to lead us in those ways. So how does God promise to speak to us? Well, you've been working through Hebrews in your manuscript discoveries, yeah? So in Hebrews chapter 1, go to Hebrews chapter 1. Sorry? What are you doing? Sorry, what was the moan? Are we allowed to? Are you allowed to? I'm going to be so gracious to you that I'm going to speak just for... 30 seconds on Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. Ooh, we're breaking things, aren't we? Oh, my goodness. Hebrews, Hebrews. Hebrews 1. Just one. Hebrews 1. That's all. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times... Sorry, did, did people run out because they can't listen to this or something? <laughs> Hebrews 1, verse 1, Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. Right? Note, long ago, at many times, many ways, right? Many and varied ways. He spoke to us. I just spoke about those many and varied ways. But in these last days, the days that we live in now, the days in which Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he will come back again sometime in the future. It could be tonight. It could be a million years from now. We don't know. But what we do know is that we are in the last days. And he has spoken to us by his Son. God the Father speaks to us supremely through his beloved Son. When you see the Son, you see the Father. Jesus reveals his Father. He and the Father are one in terms of their will, in terms of what they desire together. But here's the thing. Fifthly, God ordinarily speaks to us today by his Son through his Spirit in the Scriptures. God ordinarily speaks to us today by his Son through his Spirit in the Scriptures. So the Scriptures are the sufficient Word of God. The Scriptures are sufficient for everything we need to know for life and knowing God and following him. That's what it's sufficient for. Sufficient for everything we need to know for life, for knowing God and following him. And the sufficient Word of God therefore gives us all the principles we need to make any decision. The sufficient word of God gives us all the principles we need to know for any decision. All the principles. 
So why do we look elsewhere? As I shared on Monday night, if the phone rings, you don't put your head in the microwave oven to answer the phone, do you? If God has spoken to his, us in his word, we don't look to the wall to hear God speak to us. Let's look to his word. But the question again is, what about the spirit then? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this? Well, tonight we're actually going to concentrate on what the Bible says about the Spirit of God in the book of Ephesians as we look more closely at Ephesians. Remember, Ephesians focuses on the apostolic mission and its progress in the world to unite Jews and Gentiles in the world in a cosmic plan to create a new humanity in Christ, a new body, a new class of people together, as we've heard last night. And so far we've learned, firstly, and I think those uh, details are in your outline, firstly we've learned that the Holy Spirit seals his people when they heard the gospel word of truth and believed. And it was a down payment of the inheritance to come. Right? You'll find that in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. That was covered on Monday night. It sealed his people when they heard the gospel word of truth and believed down payment of the inheritance of heaven that is to come. But the second thing, and this is where we're going to dig a bit more deeply, is that Paul actually prays for God to strengthen our inner beings by his spirit. So it's in chapter 3, in the portion that was read out for us in chapter 3. So turn there on page 17. Chapter 3, verse 14. So it's that kind of middle paragraph. Look at what it says in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He prays, right? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Do note that it actually could say from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. That is... The Father, God the Father, is the one from whom every other father on earth takes its example. Right? That's where you get the verse from. But keep on going, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, God's glory, he may grant you, you Christians in Ephesus, grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Here's the work of the spirit, right? With power through his spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now what's going on there? They are already Christians. And he prays that they will be strengthened by the power of his spirit. This is the work of the spirit in your inner being. What is your inner being? Your inner being is, well, that portion of you, if I can say, is, is the sharpest focus of our existence that goes beyond the grave. That that might be strengthened by his spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through his spirit. Now, if you're a Christian, the spirit is already dwelling with you. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. But he says he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by his spirit. What does that mean? Why don't you have a go at asking each other for a moment? What does it mean for Christ to dwell in our hearts if we're already with Christ? Have a go at what you think that might mean. Just speak to the person next to you for about 30 seconds or so.
Okay. Any thoughts? What does it mean that Christ dwells in your hearts by his spirit if we're already in Christ? Any ideas? There's a hmm. Is that a yes? There is an idea. Who knows? Oh, that's a hmm. Who knows? Okay. Is there anybody hmm um, that is a I know? Yeah. Out there? Anybody? Any, any guesses, thoughts? To be Christ like? Yeah, how's that work? Well, he's dwelling with you. The heart is the central force of our life. It's in the Bible. So, if you have Christ dwelling in you, you should act more like Christ. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're on the money, Daniel. Not just on La La Land, but this. That's, that's, that's very impressive, Daniel. That's exactly right. I, I think you're on the money there. See, it, it, Christ dwells in our hearts. We sing that sometimes, don't we? That Christ might be in our house. I invite Christ into my heart. That's kind of when I become a Christian, so to speak. But this is speaking about more than that, isn't it? Where does Christ dwell? Well, there's a sense in which Jesus might dwell in our hearts in the sense that he establishes his residence in our hearts. Hasn't Jesus already taken up residence in our hearts? Or well, yes, but where? You know, in the right ventricle, left ventricle, you know, left atrium? Where? Does my heart beat differently when my, you know, no. It's the sharpest focus of our existence. Let me try and give you a terrible illustration. Uh, just before Dave joined us on MTS, Rob joined us on MTS. But just before Rob joined us on MTS, we bought a house. And some of you have been to our house. And we sought to buy the closest house to the university we could find. We didn't realize we'd be that close, given that they demolished the house next to us. So we're right next door to the university now. But that house that they demolished so that we can be next door actually had a whole bunch of peacocks, right? And so when we bought our house at the time, those peacocks used to use our porch as a toilet, basically. Right? So we would have to trudge through peacock poo to get into our home. And so we bought this house, you know, so three, four-bedroom house at the time. You could actually see this crack that was developing between the wall and the ceiling. Uh, peacock poo, and we would walk, and there'd be peacock poo throughout the house and all the rest of it. That's, that's the kind of house that we had. But over the years, gradually, we fixed each problem. And now over, well, the number of years that Dave and Rob have been around in, in various ways, we now have established our residence there. We've actually started fixing the holes that are in various places. There are other things that we still need to fix, and people keep telling me about that. Like our staff team, every time it rains, it just drips on them, but that's another story. But we've fixed other things, right? So we, we pulled up the shaggy carpet, and we, they got rid of the peacocks, so that kind of helped, and we actually covered in the area that they were pooing on as well. And, and now it you know, feels us. We, we've even got a compost bin. Yeah, yeah. We've got mulch in particular areas. We've got flowers kind of blossoming in various... We've got an orange tree. No oranges, but we've got an orange tree. Right? It's our house. It fills us. It's, it's doing our thing for what we want. And we've even got a gate to the back fence that opens up to the university. So we're always late to everything. But, but we're there, right? It's our house. It's us. We've established our residence there. Now, when we were saved, it is as if Christ started to dwell in the metaphorical peacock poo of our hearts. And slowly but surely taking up residence there, making us more and more like him. And this takes nothing less than the resurrection power of God through his Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus. And furthermore, it involves comprehending the incalculable dimensions of Christ's love. In other words, Paul's request is to be, for us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus and to comprehend his immeasurable love by his Spirit. Do you see how supernatural that is? See, read it again in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Right? That power refers to resurrection power in chapter 1. 
power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, right? power to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you have been a Christian for a while, what is it that stops you from sinning more? What is it that compels you not to get drunk or not to commit sexual immorality or to genuinely care for the needs of others or to tell people about Jesus? I'm not saying you to be perfect, but I am saying that the desire for these things to constantly try strive towards being Christ-like why is nothing less than the resurrection power of Jesus by his spirit dwelling in you, compelling you by his love and to understand the immeasurable dimensions of his love. That's what's on view. That's pretty cool. Right? That's the work of the spirit. Furthermore, the Spirit is involved in our calling. Our calling. Now go to uh, halfway down the page, just after that paragraph. It starts with, it looks like a small number four, but it's actually a big number four. It should be chapter four, beginning at verse one. So that's the second last paragraph there, halfway down the page. I, therefore, can you see that? I, therefore, have a look there. This is the third thing, our calling. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul speaking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's where the Spirit comes in, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. It keeps on coming up everywhere, isn't it? Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One guess as to what the most common word is there. <laughs> oh, we are slow tonight, aren't we? Yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, one, right? The word one. Seven times in six verses. And God is calling you to be one. That's your call. He's calling you to maintain the unity of the spirit you already have in this worldwide body of Christ. You see, we don't create the unity with Christian brothers and sisters all over the world. We are united with Christian brothers and sisters all over the world. Our calling is to maintain this unity, is to express this unity with Christian brothers and sisters in this worldwide body that God is creating through the proclamation of his gospel. And as the one new family, we all have one hope, one faith, one God and Father of all. And that's what I love about the Uni Bible Group and AFES throughout Australia. We're we are one, not because of our church background or our ethnic background or our class background, but we are one because of the international gospel that Jesus is Lord because of his death and resurrection, through which we know God is our Father, Jesus is our Lord, and every Christian as a brother and sister in Christ. And Paul spells this out in terms of history involving his spirit. Now turn to... Uh, verse 8 in chapter 4, so it's uh, near the end of that second last paragraph. Verse 8, it says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now that's actually a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. So if you like annotating things, you can write Psalm 68, verse 18. And here's Paul's interpretation of Psalm 68, verse 18. Verse 9, best commentary of the Bible, by the way, is not a man-made commentary, but the Bible. When the Bible commentates on the Bible, that's the best commentary you get because that's God's commentary on God's word, isn't it? 
It's a fantastic commentary. So Paul has his commentary. Go to Paul's commentary. Forget the others. Verse 9. Now, don't forget it all entirely, but it's it's helpful to know that this is far more authoritative. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, that sounds a bit confusing, but really, what is he talking about? Who ascended but our Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean that he ascended? Well, Jesus ascended. He ascended into heaven after he rose from the dead, but he also descended. He descended in terms of becoming a man before his ascension, but he also descended in another sense. He descended by his spirit, I I put to you. When did he descend by his spirit? In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We studied that in the Uni Bible Talks right at the beginning of semester. If you were there, you might recall. And it was an amazing day, which all sorts of things happened. But if you understand it that way, which is the way I, I think it's, it's right to understand, verse 11 makes sense, therefore. As you go on to verse 11, what did he give by his spirit? When Jesus descended by his spirit, what did he give? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So in other words, by his spirit, it is the spirit who gives these apostles, prophets, evangelists, revelation to equip the saints. Remember the saints that we learnt about last night, depending on the context, saints could mean Jewish Christians or it could mean all Christians. But here, I think it's referring to Jewish Christians because it's talking about the book of Acts. See, he gave the apostles, which apostles? Well, the original 12, including Matthias, who replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1. Those apostles. Your church doesn't have an apostle. It can't be referring to a local church. There are no apostles today. We're talking about the apostles back then, right? The Spirit gave the apostles. So that's the original church back in Acts chapter 1. He gave the apostles. He also gave the prophets. There are prophets spoken about in the book of Acts as well. The prophet Agabus is mentioned in Acts chapter 11. He gave evangelists. Well, which evangelists? Well, again, in the book of Acts, there's people like Philip in Acts 21. He's described as an evangelist. Right? They are the ones the Spirit gave to equip the saints, the early Jewish Christians in the book of Acts, for works of ministry, to join Jew and Gentile together into this one body. Because all the way through, he's speaking about this one worldwide body, you see. So I think he's speaking historically here of our salvation in history. And this mission continues today, verse 13. Right? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, that's what he wants us to. This is starting to sound like the where God is leading us in his will, isn't it? To unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And what's he doing here? He's saying, until we all reach unity in the faith, that's what he's heading towards. And then as we read on, there is an initial aim before that final aim of all things under the headship of Christ. There's an initial aim just before that. And what is that initial aim? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every ligament, joint, and which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, the initial aim here, here is to exercise our calling to maintain the unity of the spirit is to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love. Now, it's my fault. I didn't actually uh, have these verses actually written down or to be put down in, in your booklets. But we actually need to show you from, and, and I'll read it to you. So if you aren't quick enough to get there, but if you would like to look at it, it's in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 20. It's not there in your booklets, I'm sad to say. My fault in not including it. But verse 20, and I'm just reading to you from the ESV, just continues on. This is a couple of verses that are not printed in your booklets, but the others are. 
These couple of verses are these. Verse 20 in Ephesians 4. What do we learn about this truth? Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Right? The truth is in Jesus. When you speak the truth in love, the truth we speak about is Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, in contrast to every wind of doctrine fueled by cunning and craftiness and deceit, in contrast with the voices of the world that continue to compete for our attention, we are to listen to the voice of God concerning Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And as we speak of Jesus in love to one another, that's speaking the truth in love, you see. That's how you build the body. That's what we do to one another. Whether we're Christians or whether we're not Christians, that's what I do. I speak the truth in love. And we build the body as we speak the truth in love to one another. We grow up in Christ. As we speak the truth in love to those who are not yet Christian, while God willing they'll become Christians and join the body. That's how the body grows, you see. And as every sinew and connection in that body do their part in contrast to the false teaching. Each part seeks to tell the truth of Jesus to others in love. It leads to growth towards the head. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the source of the growth. See, this is how we maintain the unity of the Spirit. Do you see the Spirit's work? To speak the truth in love. We're already united we don't create this unity. God has already created We maintain it. But our calling is to maintain the unity of the Spirit in speaking this truth. Please note, unity for the sake of unity is, isn't necessarily good. The unity that they had in the Tower of Babel in creating it, that was not a good unity. That was an evil unity. The unity of Nazi Germany, that was an evil unity. The unity of the French soccer team when they beat Australia. That was an evil unity. Right? But the unity that God creates through the proclamation of Jesus, that's a wonderful unity. As we keep on thinking about the Holy Spirit, again, verses that I very sadly left off, but if you'd like to look at it, but just listen carefully. Regarding the Holy Spirit, it's not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 of chapter 4, let me read it to you if you haven't got it open. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By doing the exact opposite of speaking the truth in love. They were all speech things. Corrupted speech. Did you note that? Speech that involved bitterness and wrath and slander. We're not to be like that. You grieve the Holy Spirit if you sin with your speech. Cutting tongue. Putting someone down to make them feel bad. Speaking malicious words in anger. Oh, if you play soccer... Rugby league, whatever it is. There's something about that line. You know, when you cross the line to go onto the pitch or play, and your language just changes, doesn't it? When you get cut or someone trips you over or something like that, suddenly just words just come out. That's, that stuff grieves the Holy Spirit. My son, Thomas, wanted me to play soccer. And the reason he wanted me to play soccer is because he said every preacher he heard kept on saying that they were really bad when they got onto the soccer field. He said, so, Dad, I want you to play so that you can be a model to others. I thought, oh, thanks. Thanks, Tom. This is a real challenge, really. But it is a challenge, you know, when people really do something nasty or they cheat or they trip you over or whatever it is. 
And you got to get up and say, ah, I love you. <laughs> Isn't it great that you tripped me over? They're fantastic. Our, uh, one of our assistant ministers got head-butted the other day. And he is the nicest guy. Nicest guy. He plays soccer, but he got head-butted. I couldn't believe it. What do you say when you get head-butted? <laughs> Thanks. Here's the other cheek, you know. What do you do? But we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit yeah, with our talk. Now that's the equivalent. You work out what, what is the thing that gets your speech going badly. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Instead, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here you do have the text on page 19. Ephesians 5 verse 17. So it's chapter 5, but come down to verse 17. Verse 17. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, note the will of the Lord. What's the will of the Lord? Well, we learnt that back in chapter 1, verse 10, to have all things united in Jesus. That's the will of the Lord, right? Understand that will. Don't be foolish. Understand that will. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine. Do you want a specific plan for your life? Don't get drunk on wine. It's as clear as anything, isn't it? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, what's the contrast? Be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when there are foaming waves on the surface of a beach, you know there is a powerful wind above. That powerful wind causes us to walk wisely, that powerful wind is the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit. And in walking wisely is to be filled with the Spirit as we play our part in the worldwide body of Christ. The specific command, though, note, when it came to alcohol, is not to get drunk on wine. Why? Because it leads to debauchery. Right? That means indulging, indulging in immoral behavior. Do you know, excessive alcohol actually causes us to behave like animals. Excessive alcohol actually dehumanizes us. If you ever to go on a conference like this with people your age group at a university conference anywhere and there is lots of drunkenness, you will see animal behavior. It will be quite a contrast. To, oh, sometimes you might have thought you saw animal behavior in there tonight, but that's, that's different kind of animal behavior. That was self-controlled animal behavior, right? <laughs> We're talking about uncontrolled animal behavior, but it is, right? Most people drink alcohol to get stimulated. But did you know that if you look up any pharmacological textbook, so those of us are doing science and so on, if you look up a pharmacological textbook, alcohol is classed as a depressant, not a stimulant. It's a depressant. There was a preacher who was a doctor. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Years ago, reputed to be one of the best English-speaking preachers of his day, he once wrote, and this is really helpful, alcohol depresses first and foremost the highest centers of the brain. They control everything that gives someone self-control, wisdom, understanding, discernment, judgment, balance, power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes them behave at their very best and highest. That's what it depresses. So you want a specific command? Don't get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk on any alcohol. Because it makes you animalistic. 
We who are Australians need to hear this, especially, don't we? Do you know at the World Cup in Russia, when the Aussies were playing, when the Aussies visited a pub, they emptied the entire pub of its beer. The Aussies did that. Not the Russians. The Aussies did that. We need to hear it, don't we? On the other hand, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to write, if it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a pharmacological textbook, I would put him under stimulants. Why? For that's where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates every faculty, the mind, the intellect, the heart, the will. Right. He does everything right as opposed to wine or alcohol. So back to Ephesians 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you are a literary kind of person who enjoys grammar, I hope this is going to make your heart sing. If you hate grammar, I still hope it's going to make your heart sing. See, being filled with the Spirit is the main verb. The main verb. Verse 19 has all the bits that are called participles. Ever heard of that word, participles? You might have learned it as ing words, right? ing words. In other words, these participles hang off the main verb. You've got the main thing and you've got stuff that hangs off the main thing. And here are the things that hang off the main thing. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? That's the main thing. Well, what hangs off this filled with the Spirit is what the filled with the Spirit looks like. Well, in verse 19, it's addressing one another, right? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's that? It's the Word of God, isn't it? By addressing one another in those things, that's what the Spirit does. That's the Word of God stuff. But secondly, it's singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's what we do. And, and it, it, the assumption is that you're seek, singing. The word of God, making melody to the Lord with the word of God with your heart. Verse 20, it means giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's giving thanks, right? So addressing one another is a participle. Singing and making melody is another couple of participles. Giving thanks is a participle. And wait for it, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a filled with the Spirit activity. Now, we're going to look at that more closely tomorrow night, especially the submitting to one another. But that's all what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You want to know what the Spirit does? It's all these things. See, here is the stimulating activity of God's Holy Spirit. Does that capture your imagination? Does it stimulate your wildest dreams? Here is God's specific will for your life. So specific. Is it here that it tells you how it is that we can make the unity of the Spirit expressed, maintain it? And guess what, dear friends? We've been filled with the Spirit all week here at MYC, haven't we? We've addressed each other with Scripture all day, all night. We've been singing to one another in songs, making melody in our hearts to God. We've been giving thanks to God for our food and for everything else in our daily prayers. We've been submitting to one another in all our activities in various ways. We're going to talk about how specifically to submit tomorrow night as Ephesians spells it out. But generally submitting to one another, that too is a spirit-filled thing. We submit to uh, orderlies. We submit to the games people who are running things. We submit to the MCs as they do things. We submit to people when they tell us to sit down or stand up. We've been submitting to one another all the time. That doesn't dehumanize us. It doesn't make us inferior anyway. Submission's a great thing, but more of that tomorrow night. But finally, finally, if you turn to page 21, Ephesians 6, verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? Which is the word of God. Oh, what's the Spirit's activity? 
is to be the only offensive weapon in the armory of God in the heavenly realms. The sword of God's own Holy Spirit is the word of God. We're back to the word of God. So our God who is leading us to the new creation is our loving sovereign father. And although he has and can lead us in many and varied ways, the only way that he promises to lead us is by his son through his spirit in the scriptures. His spirit-filled scriptures. Remember, God's word, which is the sword of the spirit, is sufficient for everything we need to know for life and knowing him and following him. And as such, the sufficient word of God gives us all the principles that we need to make any decision. That's the thesis we're running with. Gives us all the principles we need to make any decision. There's a guy named John Flavel. He wrote, The scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. The scriptures do that. That's all of life. Do you know the longest chapter in the Bible, in the longest book of the Bible, in the longest half of a very long collection of books, is all about the Word of God? And you'll never guess what that is. Psalm 119. Yeah. We've been having it read to us every morning, and you've been reading it to us. Uh, you've been reading it yourself in your own reflection times. Out of the 1,189 chapters scattered across 66 books written over the course of two millennia, Psalm 119 is the longest and for good reason. Do you know why? It's a love poem. Did you know that? Psalm 119 is a love poem. This psalm is known as an acrostic psalm, meaning that each stanza begins with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The next eight verses with the second letter, Beit. The other 22 stanzas and 176 verses, etc. All oozing, all oozing with love for God's word. So let me give you some example. We've heard it each morning, but here we are. This love poem is not about marriage or children or travel or work or food or drink or mountains or sunsets or oceans. But it's all about the Bible. Here's a We've had a taste each morning, haven't we? But let me read out to you Psalm 119. If you would like to follow, you're very welcome to follow. It's from verse 129. Verse 129. Listen to this love poem. Psalm 119, verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Oh, turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. You see what he's saying? It's pretty emotional stuff, isn't it? Panting, longing, weeping stream of tears. It's passionate. It's sincere. Does that resonate with your heart? And my prayer for us is that this is where you turn when you long for God to lead you. I want to commend my final book to you, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. Taking God at His Word, Kevin DeYoung. I got all of that out of Kevin's book, actually, a lot of it. It says, Psalm 119 shows us what to believe about the Word of God. This is his quote. What to feel about the Word of God and what to do with the Word of God. That's the chemical reaction produced in God's people when we pour it into our heads and hearts. Chemical reaction. 
Well, how then should we read the Word of God? How should we read the Bible? Here's some thoughts as we close. By depending on it for life. That's how we should read the Bible, by depending on it for life, like we depend on food for life. I'm not talking about eating an apple pie at the end, but by depending on food, the food of life. And by loving the Word of God, that's how we should be reading the Word of God. See, what matters more is our attitude to the Bible rather than how often or how much we read, whether we read it X times a day or getting through a year, etc. Now, those are all wonderful, wonderful ways of thinking about it. But we're not going to come anywhere close to reading it if we don't live as if we depend on it for life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, says Jesus. He's quoting Deuteronomy. But when we do love the Word of God, when we do read it, it it's wonderful, isn't it? That's what we're doing all week. If you were here last night, I don't know how many of you are here, but there was a significant number asking questions, and someone actually had to stop us at question time at 10.30 last night. It would have kept on going if someone didn't stop us, because you guys were so hungry for the Word of God. You began at 8.30, you're going through and you could have gone on and on and on. Why? Because you're hungry for the Word of God. When you're, you're digging to the Word of God, it actually does that for you, doesn't it? And can I suggest to you, therefore, to read books of the Bible prayerfully and systematically, personally, read, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it, ask questions of it, read it systematically, not just you know the... Uh, the, the method where you put your Bible down, let the wind blow, and go, oh, I'll read that bit, and then the wind blows, oh, I'll read that bit, oh, I'll, wind blow. I'll read that bit. No, start systematic, start somewhere and just work your way through systematically. And here's another thing you can do try and memorize it. It's, I think it's going out of fashion. So I'm on a crusade to reverse that and create the trend of memorizing scripture again. A couple of friends who are here tonight visiting that we actually worked at the task of memorizing the whole of Colossians together. Those guys did a far better job than me, but it was a great exercise. You know, when I find it hard to get to sleep sometimes at night or in the middle of the night, I get up for whatever reason, I'll go back to Colossians and it's kind of vaguely there. I'm going to think, wow, that's nice. And that's kind of nice to bathe in scripture through your memory. And one day your eyesight's going to go, your hearing's going to go, but Gee, if scripture's still in there, that'll be wonderful. Try memorizing scripture. This year, I'm trying to memorize some Psalms. Last year, it was Colossians. Who knows? We'll go back and forth and see. But get into memorizing it. Pray and pray to God using the words of scripture. Can I also suggest you read it with others, obviously. And if you are married, do, ma uh, do marry. <laughs> You're already married. But do read the Bible with your spouse. You think, yeah, that's a natural thing. But I, I, over and again, I keep on meeting couples who worked very hard in their dating time, but once they're married, it just sort of falls off by the side. But we should keep on doing it, keep working at it together. And can I suggest you, if you're going out with someone, read the Bible together. Oh, but someone said to me that you're going to bond if you read the Bible. You shouldn't bond if you're going to read the Bible. You've got to be real. You shouldn't do that. I mean, that's just, oh, someone said that to me. Can I just blow a big raspberry to that? That is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Let me tell you why it's so stupid. Right. Let me tell you why. Because if you're, if you're actually going out with one another, you're going to bond, aren't you? Aren't you going to bond? So what are you going to bond over? Oh, let's bond over watching a movie. Oh, great bonding. That'd be great. Let's do that in La La Land. That'd be a great thing to bond over. Oh, no, no, let's bond over a fire. That'd be great. Oh, let's watch the sunset together so that, you know, we're not going to bond in a, in a moral way or anything like that. Oh, I know. I know the best way to bond. Let's go into a closed room and close the door and only sit in the one place that you can possibly sit in the bedroom. <gasps> On a bed. Why, that's really bonding, isn't it? I mean, and that's so pure and right and true. How silly. You're going to bond over something, so what are you going to bond over? What's the best thing to bond over? Read the scriptures, for goodness sake. Read the Bible. Read the Bible together. What better way to bond than over the scriptures so that your minds are thinking the same way in God's way? Read the Bible 
work hard at reading the Bible together. You're going to think, oh, this seems so hard. But once you start reading, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And aim to know several books of the Bible. You know, mix Old Testament, New Testament. There are so many wonderful tools out there that you can learn about. But let me finish with a quote from John Piper. The very God of the universe, who has blessed us in Christ, speaks to us on every page of the Bible into my mind and your mind. We hear his very words. By this voice, he speaks with absolute truth and personal force. By this voice, he reveals his all-surpassing beauty. By this voice, he reveals the deepest secrets of our hearts. No voice anywhere, anytime can reach as deep or lift as high or carry as far as the voice of God than we hear in the Bible. It is a great wonder that God still speaks today through the Bible with greater force and greater glory and greater assurance and greater sweetness and greater hope and greater guidance and greater transforming power and greater Christ-exalting truth that can be heard through any voice in any human soul on the planet from outside the Bible. God speaks to us in his word. Love it. Everything you need to know for life and godliness, every principle to make any decision in life comes from God's almighty, sufficient, powerful, holy word. And every promise is here contained in his word in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's all sufficient. And we pray that as we make decisions, that we will continually pant for your word. Live as if our life depends on your word, because it does. Therefore, love you more and love one another more. Through your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.